All right, I'm going to go ahead and get started, even though we are um, a little sparse, but usually it fills up by the time we get done. So let's go ahead and open with the word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this word in Deuteronomy. And we pray that you would focus our minds and hearts on your word, not just intellectually, but that we would be transformed, that you would make us more and more into the image of your son. But even as you are doing that, that we would never trust in ourselves or in any improvements that we see that somehow that could withstand your judgment, that all of our righteousness is by Jesus and in Jesus alone, and that we would always hold on to that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's get into Deuteronomy. We're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 19. Sorry, chapter 1, verse 19. <laughs> yeah, yeah, chapter 19. Boy, you thought you walked into a time warp there, huh? What? <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to continue to go chapter by chapter, but I want to do it for a little ways, maybe at least until the first section, and then maybe look thematically, topically, because I don't know how many weeks we're going to spend. If I'm going to do this in the winter quarter, keep doing Deuteronomy, then we could be more detailed. If not, then we'll skate over the surface a little bit more. But the, we left off last time looking at what I call the double failure at Kadesh Barnea when they initially sent out the 12 spies. And we all know that uh, great moment, as it were, and it seemed like everything was going to happen uh, very quickly as God had promised and as no doubt God intended in that sense that if they were faithful, it would have happened quickly. Obviously, God in his ultimate predestination knew exactly what was happening and, and he had a plan, but... For Israel, and from their perspective, it was their first great failure was that they would not go in and take the land by war, which was what God had commanded them to do. And we saw last time we left off by looking at the cause of their failure. Clearly, they feared the world more than they trusted in God. They thought their enemies were too great when there's a sense in which knowing that truth is the first part of trusting in God. You have to know that your enemies are too great. And again, I'm thinking of us now spiritually in the church, that the world, the flesh, and the devil are way too great for me. No matter how many years I've been a Christian, no matter how much I think I know about the Bible and my experience, the enemies are way too great. And that's the first part of faith, to know you cannot do it. That's a conviction that saving faith demands. As soon as you think you can do something, that's when you're in trouble. So we must first abase ourselves. We must first acknowledge and believe we cannot do what God requires. Uh, and we are not in a posture to, to have saving faith until we come to that point that I can't do it. And remember, this whole Exodus event is likened. It is the most um, the biggest type of our salvation in the New Testament. When the New Testament wants to talk about what God delivered us from, how God saved us, it talks about Israel being delivered from bondage and being saved from Egypt and being given a land that had nations mightier and greater than they. They were not able to come in 
and take the land by war. That's the very point that they should have been understanding after Egypt. I mean, how in the world did they escape Egypt? By their power? By their might? Not at all, but by God's power and God's might. So I want to notice here then the effects of unbelief in God, which began as they were inherently looking at themselves and what they were able, and therefore they stopped believing in God. And these are the effects. We see them in verse 27, blaming God. Verse 27, and you complained in your tents and you said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites. There the Amorites are just summarizing the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Hivites, and all the rest of the ites uh, to destroy us. And so they, they begin to blame God and they begin to question his goodness. They blame man. After the spies give their report and talk about the land being good, um, they also talk about how you can't do it, but Caleb and, and Joshua try to encourage them to do it. But what do they say? Verse 28, where can we go up or how can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there who were uh, these giants that uh, I'm going to maybe talk about later. So they blame God. They blame man. And God even then provides the solution. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God goes before you. Of course, they're too great for you. Of course, their cities are too powerful for you. But that was the whole point of this. God's going to go before you. God will be with you. God will fight for you, just like he did to you in Egypt before your eyes. So they saw the ten plagues. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, and in the wilderness, you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. And so that would be referring to giving them the quail, giving them water from the rock, giving them the manna, how God cared for them. Again, supernaturally, they see miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle and no saving faith. Miracles cannot produce saving faith. Miracles leave you without excuse. It proves that you should believe in God. He is the supernatural one. Look, you saw. But they don't actually give saving faith. Though they leave man without excuse, man should believe when he sees that God parts the Red Sea. So God will do it for you, as you have already seen. That's what God's saying. You can readily recount his power. You've uh, seen his ability to save you. And I think that we can, again, apply this to our situation. If you're a Christian, um, if you came to Christ later in life, like me, then you can readily recount God's super ability to save you. You recognize where you were and what you were doing and how you didn't want God. And then you recognize how he saved you and changed your heart and you did want him. And so that supernatural Change that he really did work in your heart. You can recall that if you came to Christ later in life. And so that's like Israel recalling God's work. God did that. Therefore, surely he can get you through whatever it is that's in front of you. And so I think that Christians who come to Christ later in life have that um, sort of one-to-one -one application of this kind of a truth. You saw what God did. You were in bondage. God brought you from death into gave you life and now you're living for him the danger for one like me coming to Christ later in life is seems to me to become complacent 
Antinomianism is more of my temptation and danger because God did it when I had no ability and now I sometimes might say, well, you know what, doesn't matter what I do and, you know, I don't have to worry about anything and God will do it again and no real, real urgency to be faithful. The temptation is do nothing, right? Uh, it's either uh, um, works righteousness or do nothing and that's not true. Um, what's true is if we trust in God, we will walk in his commandments, but we'll never look at that, that faithfulness as anything uh, by which we should trust him. It seems to me, though, if you were raised in a Christian home, and you also have, a, have an application here, because even though you can't recall some great time of rebellion as in a young adult or something, you do get to look around you and you see what happens to the unbelievers who are your age. I mean, you can see that when you're in a covenant home or a Christian home, and you see friends that don't believe, and you see the turmoil and the sin and all of the stuff that the Lord has delivered you from by giving you that stable home. I used to tell that to my kids all the time. If you ever find yourself in a situation where, you know, there's chaos and there's fear and there's wickedness and there's hatred in your home, Remember what you had with mom and dad growing up. Not that we were anything, but remember that we feared the Lord and God gave us a nice home. It's funny, Jacob uh, was home recently and, you know, he's the senior this year. He's going to graduate. The world is coming. And we were looking at different things in the house and some old pictures. And I said, you guys had a pretty good childhood. He goes, yeah, he goes, sometimes I wish I was back home. Not looking at what was, what's to come. And, and talking on the phone with Daniel in Korea. Same kind of thing. He goes, yeah, sometimes I think that too. We had it pretty good, Dad. And I just, every time they say that, I remind them, it's not your dad. It's not your mom. It's the Lord. We trusted in the Lord. We were imperfect in many ways, but you did. You had a good upbringing. You had a peaceful home. You had a home of love. And so if you were raised in a covenant home, look at that. Look at how many temptations God delivered you from. You didn't even have to struggle with. And your, your you know, uh, colleagues and your friends just fall for them one after another. They're just falling by the wayside. You didn't have that. You didn't fall for that. <clears throat> and when you did fall, because, you know, most Christian kids can say, oh, I did this or that. But how, how quickly God brought you back to repentance. How, how much he saved you from serious consequences that he did not deliver your friends from. But the danger, I think, for growing up in a Christian home is, well, because you see that, because you see all that good, you think that maybe you can reproduce that. And, and you start to look to your works, and it's legalism that you're tempted by, it seems to me. Um, activism. Well, my parents did it, and I'll do it, and I'll set up this system of rules, and it'll happen because we'll do the works. And you, you missed it if you think that. You're not going to be able to do it. you still got to be like the Israelites. I can't do it. It doesn't matter that you had a Christian heritage. And that's, bringing, that's one more reason to, to look at God's grace and what it delivered you from. So, so there's no substitute. There's no shortcut for the self-abasing and God-exalting faith that we have to have. It's always self-abasing faith. It's always God-exalting faith. It's never look at what you can do or might do or will do. And it's never, you know, completely abandon any uh, uh, desire to obey God. God-exalting, self-abasing faith that does seek to obey him, always recognizing how far short it falls. 
So all sin and all rebellion begins with unbelief. Verse 32, yet for all that, after Moses recounts what God did, how God carried them, yet for all that, he says, you did not believe. He doesn't say you did not obey. You did not believe the Lord your God, therefore you did not obey. But it was a lack of faith that the rebellion was. The rebellion at Kadesh Barnea and not going to take the land, as much as they complained about God and complained about the enemies and said, we can't do it, it was a lack of faith. Because God said in the beginning, of course you can't do it. I'll do it for you. Just believe. They didn't believe. They looked at themselves. They looked at the world. And they doubted God's goodness. I think that's what we especially doubt when we fall short. We doubt that God is really out for our good. Like they said about the Lord in verse 27, because the Lord hates us. He brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. God is out to get me. As soon as you start to think that. On the one hand, you are thinking rightly in a sense about yourself because God should be out to get you. No doubt about that. But on the other hand, you're doubting his promise and his faith that in spite of that, and he knows that far better than you do. In spite of that, he has promised to be your God. He has promised to be good. You just have to believe it. And that's what Israel didn't do. Jesse. Mm -hmm. Yes. Anything. Yeah, absolutely. And that's an important phrase to, to, most of the time I don't like, you know, the Christian sayings because they're always distorting the truth at some point. But that's a hard one to find fault with. But for the grace of God, there go I. Um, I, I can't find too much fault with that or any really, because uh, that's always true. And as disgusted as you may be with some kind of sin or some group of sinners that you see, and it's just disgusting, and it should be disgusting to us. Just remember that God is so much more disgusted with you and your sins. No matter how far above you see yourself from whatever it is that you see as the worst sinner. And I think that's really a powerful message of Deuteronomy. That God's goodness is for them, not because of themselves, but because of God. And so they get this one more great reminder of how God cared for them. So, you know, verse uh, 30, 30, verse 31, verse 32, they didn't believe. And then verse 33, but yet what? Who was the Lord? He went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents, to show you the way you should go in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. That, to me, is a pretty stunning verse. So he's, you know, he said how God you know, carried you out of Egypt. He fought for you. You saw what he did. And you didn't believe. And then he reminds them, it wasn't just the big things. Every day, you know, that pillar of cloud and that pillar of fire. What did that tell them? When the pillar of cloud was over the ark 
and over or the fire over the um, ark, then they they are to stay put. And then when it would move, they would go until it would settle again. And I think verse 33 is saying God even like looked at the ground before he had you stop. This is the best place to set your tents up. This is the place where you're going to have the least rocks that you're going to stub your toes on. I mean, even that kind of care, detailed daily care. God went before you to search the place for you to pitch your tents. Before the clouds stopped, this is the best place for them to pitch. How, how careful God provided for them. He didn't even leave it to them where they should pitch their tents for Pete's sake. Every day God cared for them that much. What an insult to God who finally brings them to this place that the entire Exodus was promising and aiming toward. He's going to give them the land, even going back 400 years earlier when he promised this to Abram and to Isaac and to Jacob, and now God's on the cusp of fulfilling that word, and they don't think he's going to do it. They think he's out to get them. That's the seriousness of the rebellion of Kiddush Barnea. Um, and God's patience does not go on forever. You see that again in verse 34, 35, 37, 38, 39. And the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry, and he took an oath, saying, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to give your fathers. I mean, this promise for generation after the goodness of God, the power of God, no generation has ever seen Miracle after miracle after miracle. All of those plagues, right? The signs that Moses did when he first came in to prove that he was from God. The parting of the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, the water from the rock, the quail a waist deep. They've already seen all that. And still they won't go in and take the land because our enemies are too powerful. They're not trusting in God. So no wonder. I mean, God is patient. God is long-suffering. God is merciful. But God will eventually bring serious, and I can't even really call it wrath or judgment here, chastening to his people, because he doesn't cast them all off as he should have and as they clearly deserve. He simply brings judgment to the one generation. And even then, he spares Caleb and Joshua, as we see in the text, verse 37, the Lord was also angry with me for your sake, saying, even you shall not go in there. Now, Moses doesn't get into detail. He will later, where Moses did commit an act of unbelief, but if you read the the category, or I'm the, sorry, the, the um, context, it was because Moses was so frustrated with the people that he doesn't speak to the rock, but he strikes it. So it was their sin sort of frustrating him to the point where he too uh, rebels. And so I think he's right when he says, the Lord was also angry with me for your sakes. Moses is bearing this burden, bearing this burden, bearing this burden. Yeah, and sometimes it comes out in him too because you get tired of bearing it. Yes. Isn't it amazing that there's one time? Yeah. One time. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, that's amazing. That's Yeah. Yeah. One time. One time. And yet, because God had brought Moses so close and, and made him such an example, that was sufficient for God to show the people in Moses. Um, that sin is something that we should always avoid. And uh, again, Moses, not like Moses. Moses in his earthly body wanted nothing more than to enter that land. But God had something better for him when he died. And he knew that too. But, you know, there are things that we want in this life, right? A lot of people want, you know, a spouse and, and God doesn't give them one. Or they want a child and God doesn't give them one. 
And we can't make this world the most important thing, it seems to me. But uh, verse 39 and 40, moreover, your little ones, your children who you said would be victims. Remember, that was one of their motivations. We can't go into the land why they'll kill our children. So God turns it around. No, you're the ones that will die and your children will get the land. And there's a great deal of uh, irony, as it were, in that kind of a judgment. Um, I will give it to them and they will possess it. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Okay, you want a journey in the wilderness more? I'm going to give you what you want. I mean, here's God giving them exactly what they wanted. And God's promises are certain. They are going to happen, but I can't presume upon them, right? I can't presume. Uh, I have to believe in order to realize the promises of God. They didn't believe, so they didn't realize the promises. God's judgment on Moses was, again, for your sakes. Let me just read to you what happens in Numbers 20. This is where Moses commits that act of rebellion. Numbers 20, verse 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock. And give drink to the congregation and their animals. This wasn't the first time. And on a previous occasion, God did instruct Moses to strike the rock. But this is God's power, and God says the way to do it. And God says to this time, you will speak to the rock. But Moses, it says, took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? I mean, you can hear his frustration in that. He's getting tired. Then Moses lifted his hand and he struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly. God still did it. That's really the shocking thing, right? Because God so, again, invested in Moses this authority and this, uh, his godliness. It was all from God. And the congregation and their animals drank. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me. Isn't it funny? Again, it was faith, lack of faith. To hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. They should have hallowed God, did only in exactly what he said. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given to them. So our sins and our unbelief can have a negative consequence on other people. Uh, and, and in effect, that's what happened with the people. Moses was the leader of the people. They were constantly complaining and Moses let it get to him to a point where he sinned and now he's going to suffer with them. And so Moses could say, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes, saying, even you shall not go in there. Um, that was a true statement. And Moses spoke that under the inspiration of the Spirit too. Verses 39 and 40 again show God's power to protect his people is not from us. And there's a question here, and I think we talked about this last time, and I really don't have an answer. Is this God's chastening on people who were really his in this destruction of this generation? Or were they reprobate for the most part? And they're being destroyed because they've shown themselves to be reprobate. I don't know if this scripture gives us enough to answer that. Steve. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And 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 part of the answer is there is always a remnant, right? There is always a remnant that God keeps because that's what he said. You know, he would be their God 
you know, forever, generation to generation. And that's the way I understand that also to us as Christians. You know, God doesn't promise all your kids are going to be saved because you're a Christian if you're good enough. But he does promise, it seems to me, because if you're saved, as long as your line goes on, I think you're going to see God at work. Maybe a generation or two are unfaithful, but God's going to bring about a revival as long as your line continues. That's the way I understand it, that God's gospel will reach some of them, right? But you can't. You can't say, well, if I do my part, all my kids will be saved. That certainly wasn't true for Israel. How could it be true for us? Dave. Wow. Wow. Okay. That sounds like baptismal regeneration to me. <clears throat> yeah. And, and, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, clearly there were always tares among the wheat. And that's, I think, the church too. Yes, Grace. Now you're talking about the generation that did not go into the land. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering what. And so, I mean, we, well, we also don't know. So who repented in that time? Yeah. A lot could have happened. Oh, yeah. That's right. God could have through that and, and, and that doesn't mean because you die in the wilderness, right, that you're not a repentant person because, you know, um, I think 1 Corinthians 11 is the great example that Paul says to the Corinthians, you know, this is why some of you are sick and some of you have died because you're sinning against God. And he's bringing, again, a temporal judgment, but you can't say, oh, everyone that's sick and everyone that died is an unbeliever. You know, that's the era of Job's friends. Um, it may be that, you know, a lot of the people that were sick and died actually were the believers and they repented, as you were saying, in the midst of those chastenings and God brought them home. When God brings you home, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a better thing. I don't care how good your life is. It's better when God brought you home. You know, go back to what uh, God, how God brought Sandy Higgs home. She's in Aruba, beautiful, most beautiful place in the world. And the next moment, she's in a place that made that look like a garbage dump. You know, um, it's always better in heaven. So it's, you know, if God chastens a believer unto death, that's not hate, that's love. And we're all going to die anyway. We get about 70 or 80 years. It's not that long. You know, what's the difference between, oh, well, that believer got to live to be 70, but that believer died at 50. God must have hated him. In the scheme of eternity, 20 years. On the earth, where it's painful and sinful and hard, and we always have stress and anxiety and everything else, the other person gets 20 more years of heaven forever. Maybe it was the other person that he loved more. I don't know. Jesse. Have you told a little bit of those, like, every Christian over the years kind of throw their hands up and say, like, I Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes, I agree with everything you said, but I do see some godly ones, you know, in the scriptures doing that, right? I mean, Elijah, 
Lord, I'm the only one left. Take me. Take me out of this world. I'm tired. Um, and God, you know, sends him to uh, strengthens him with the angel, gives him some few more things to do. But he does take him not too long after that, you know, so, seems to me. Uh, so, you know, it is, it is understandable. And I think some of the great saints have felt that way um, at times. Paul said it was better to go and be with the Lord, but it's more needful to be here. So even though Paul, I think, is, he desired to go to be with the Lord, yet, like you said, he understood he had work to do. But work is harder than reward in heaven. And I think when you have that like kind of faith, you do long for heaven uh, the longer your life goes on. But it's always wrong to want to die, as it were. Um, I think we want to serve the Lord, whether we live or die, and whether it's hard or easy. But, um, but yeah, uh, when we get weak, sometimes we do cry out. So, Verse 36 and verse 38 are good examples to us. In the midst of this judgment, in the midst of this unbelief, there is still the good examples of holy following the Lord. I'm using the language of the text there. Uh, verse 36, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and his children, I, will, I am giving the land on which he walked because he wholly followed the Lord. And that doesn't mean he was sinless, but it does mean that he wasn't holding on to sin like the other ones were to the point of, well, there's a certain price where I'm not going to follow the Lord. Oh, they, the Anakim are there. Okay, I was good until that point. You know, I'm not wholly devoted to God. Uh, Caleb was. Uh, Caleb sinned in everything he did too, but Caleb was devoted to God. He was going to do what God said. He believed. And Joshua also, verse 38, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there and encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to hear it, inherit it. They weren't double-minded. Um, they weren't um, starting and stopping. They had committed their lives to the Lord. They were going to die following him again, even though they were still sinners. So there's, there's a good example here, right? Um, even in a time of compromise, even in a time of massive compromise and looking to your own works and looking to self, you can still trust in God and God will still recognize that. In the midst of this generation, God blessed these two individual men. Out of the 12 spies, these two said, yes, it's everything they said, but God is with us. So of course we can do it. Let's go. And just with that little bit of faithfulness, God recognized and blessed them. So, um, you know, there is an encouraging part here too. You know, maybe you find yourself in a terrible time or place where the church is compromising, where Christians are falling by the wayside. You can't control that, but you can be faithful. You can give your good report. You can give your good testimony and God will see it. And God will reward it. That's what that tells me. Even in the midst of the whole church falling apart. Right? Um, so this is their failure at Kadesh Barnea. They fail to go into the land. And then they fail again. The second great failure is the opposite. The first failure was, we're not going to do it. It's too hard. The second failure was, we're going to do it because it's too hard not to. I mean, literally, that's what they do. God pronounces the judgment that's going to happen because they refuse to trust in him and take the land. And they say, well, we don't want that. We'll go to war. And that is not the right attitude. They should have humbled their hearts. If anything, okay, you could say, well, you know, they should have humbled their hearts and obeyed and turned and, and done what God said. I think there's another option. They could have humbled their hearts and cried out and fasted and prayed for God to relent, right? I mean, you see David doing that when God says your son will die. 
And what does David do? For a week he fasts and prays. And at one point they even said to him, well, you know, why are you doing this? And he said, because I know the Lord is merciful and he may relent. And as long as the child lived, I had hope that he might turn back from his fierce wrath. Even the words that he pronounced, somehow, some way, God might be able to give him more life and I'm going to pray and fast until he does. Maybe they could have prayed and fasted and wept before the Lord at Kadesh Barnea and cried out to him. Uh, not to send them away. And maybe God would have done something. I don't know. But the one thing they could not do is now refuse what God has said that they must do, turn back. They can't say, we're going to do the opposite. We're going to go in now. And now it's without the Lord. Because God's not going to go anymore. He's already said, too late. You've rebelled. And now, you know, God pronounces the great judgment upon them. And so, after they hear the, the cost of rejecting God... Verse 34 to 40 again. The Lord heard your words, took an oath. Not one of this evil generation shall get into the land. They're going to, for every day, they're going to have to have a year, 40 years. Wow, we don't want that. We're going to go to war so that we don't get what we deserve. What God said we're going to do. So they rejected the word of God the first time. They reject the word of God the second time. They didn't want the hardship of taking the land the first time. They don't want the hardship of God's chastening the second time. It's entirely for them. Both times, entirely for them. I, I've heard Christians struggle with this, but, but pastor, they said they're going to go in and take the land now. Don't you get it? He said, no. He said, don't go in now. It's just as rebellious to say we're going to go in when God says don't than it is to not go in when God says do. It's God's word that determines our obedience and our faith, not what is better for us. And that's all they were doing. They thought it was better for them to not fight because they can't do it, and they, so they weren't looking to God. And now they think it's better for them to, to go fight because they don't want to do that, and they're not looking to God. God will help you in the midst of this. If you just humble your heart, this chastening won't be so bad. Maybe he'll relent. Maybe uh, you'll have all kinds of blessings in the wilderness. Maybe you'll have all sorts of uh, times of, of, of refreshing and joy and delight. They didn't want it. They wanted what they wanted. So they rebelled again. They reject his word, this time word of judgment. God said, as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And so what do they do? They go and try to fight the land and they get defeated. Verse 44, then you returned and wept before the Lord. So after they rebel by not going in, after they rebel by going in, now they weep. But this is not the, the tears of repentance. This is the tears of a child who's gotten punished, even though he didn't want it, and he's not going to get that toy, and now he's just crying out of pure selfishness. That's why it says, but the Lord did not listen to your voice. There is no repentance there. We didn't get the land. We tried it on our own, and, we got and now we know we're going to have to be punished, and we don't want to go to our room and take our medicine, so we're just going to sit here like spoiled children and bawl our eyes out. And so they go into, they have to go into um, the Exodus. The Exodus kind of really starts now, 38 years, 38 and a half years, covered in two verses, 146 to 2 1. So you remained in Kadesh many days, according to the days that you spent there, then 2 1. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness of the way of the Red Sea. And as the Lord spoke to me, we skirted the mountain, Mount Seir, for many days. And then the Lord spoke, spoke to me saying, you've skirted this mountain long enough. So 38 years, 146 to 1. 
where they just traveled. They stayed in a lot, a lot of places for a long time. They skirted Mount Seir, as he describes it, and they just traveled. And there's a direct application of this event to the church. Turn to Hebrews. Uh, that's what I said. Th this book and this Exodus event are so important to us as Christians. And the, the New Testament does apply it, as I'm trying to apply it, one-to-one -to, -one to us. The physical phenomenon of the Exodus, getting the promised land. The spiritual phenomenon of us living in this sinful world and yet having the promises of God, of heaven and eternal life. We see it in verse 12 of chapter 3. And so just as Moses reminded the Israelites, so the author of the Hebrews is reminding Christians so that they won't fail to conquer their trials and tribulations, uh, so that they won't fail in believing in God and therefore living for God. So chapter 3, verse 12, beware, this is now again a New Testament preacher preaching to the church, beware brethren, lest there be in any of you, notice, an evil heart of unbelief, it's always unbelief, in departing from the living God. As long as you believe, you're not going to do that. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Well, it seems so much easier to not do what God said. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence to the end, while it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? So he is talking about that generation. Those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey. So we see, and notice again the, the, the crux here, we see they could not enter in because of their works weren't good enough. <laughs> because of unbelief. They didn't believe in God. So they couldn't enter in. Terry. Oh, I thought you, I saw your hand. Um, so then, now he applies it. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, obviously not the literal land of Canaan, the rest of God, peace with God, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. They had the gospel. Don't ever think Sinai was a return to the covenant of works. The gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith. They didn't trust in the Lord. They heard in the Ten Commandments a way to earn God's favor, the very thing that some theologians said they were supposed to hear. No, they were supposed to hear, you can't do it, trust in me. They heard, we can do it. And they tried to do it, and when they saw their enemies were too great then, for them, since they were looking to themselves, then they thought they couldn't do it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. It's the believer who enters that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Uh, let me skip to verse 6. Therefore it remains that some must enter it. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. So it was because of unbelief, which leads to rebellion and disobedience. They would not do what God said because they were believing in themselves and not God. And therefore they saw they couldn't do it. And that was the very thing they needed to see as they looked to God. Of course we can't do it because God's going to do it for us. 
So this is the direct application. Notice some of the things that we get, just like uh, Israel's getting rebuked. This is why I think Deuteronomy is so relevant to the church. Warning against unbelief, just like to the Jews. And it begins by degrees, right? Wow. The Anakim are really big. Wow, the cities, the walls, and you see how thick they were. And they begin to look at themselves thinking we have to do it. And they begin to doubt God. God said he'll do it. The bigger they are, the harder they're going to fall. That's the first time that saying really was true. The bigger they are, clear. God is for us. We just have to go. And the deceitfulness of sin, right? They think by uh, slowly unbelieving that they're going to have it better. We're going to survive if we don't listen to God. And then the warning against the hardening process, which by now had been happening to Israel because God says they harden their hearts in the rebellion. Don't be like them. He's saying to the church, don't be like them. They hardened their hearts. And that hardening happened little by little. Unbelief looking to self. Unbelief looking to self. Not wanting to do what God said. Not trusting in God's goodness. God is out to get us. He's going to destroy us. He hates us. That's why he brought us here. Uh, Little by little, um, they harden their hearts. And so the exhortation to persevere, hold fast what you have, just as Jesus said to the churches. And we see again that interplay of unbelief and disobedience. That as they disbelieve, they disobey. And one inexorably leads to the other. So let's jump then to chapter 2, back to Deuteronomy chapter 2. Any thoughts on anything else? There's more we could say about Hebrews, by the way, we're going to see this same one-to-one application of Exodus-type events in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10. Um, and we're going to go back there again, but it's a little bit later on in, in Deuteronomy where that becomes applicable. Yeah, Bob. I was going to say, whenever I read through Hebrews, yeah. <laughs> I think the last time I read Hebrews, and I, I, there's a temptation like, enough already. Quit talking to me, not to harden my heart, but like, you see how much it's said in those yeah. chapters. yeah. Yeah, don't harden your heart because you can do it. I mean, as a Christian, I, we can't presume. I, I say this all the time, right? You, you can't presume upon yesterday's grace. You've got to believe the Lord today. Seek the Lord today. His promises are just as true today, but you yourself believe. You believe. You're not looking to your works. You're not saying, oh, I've got to do enough today. I just have to humble myself and believe. I have to have that self-abasing faith. I'm not good enough. And that God-exalting and trusting faith, God is for me. And that's the, that's the battle we face every day. And I think it gets harder, in a sense, as you get older. You get tired. You know, you bear it longer and longer. You know, um, Bailey used to say it. Some of you remember, you know, uh, that he talked to some old minister one time when he was a young minister. And the old minister was like, you get tired of bearing the burden. You get tired. And it's easy. I think temptations change as you get older. The temptation as you get older is, you know what, I've done it long enough. I put my time in. I'm done. Let the young people do it now. They need to step up. And there's a lot of truth in that. But I still can't not live out my faith too every day. I still have. It's going to look different now, right? I'm not going to be down there running around with the VBS kids. I don't have the energy to do that anymore. Young people need to step up in those areas. But I still need to believe in God and obey God in my areas, right? And being patient and, and being an example uh, in serving in the ways that I can serve and, and not getting, you know, as, as you mentioned, Jess, 
you know, disgusted with the filth around me because my filth is so much more disgusting to God. And I've got to always remember that. No matter how long I've been a Christian, no matter how long I've been teaching Sunday school, no matter how long I've been walking with the Lord, I'm still unworthy. It's still grace alone. It's still faith alone. And, and that's, I think, that gets harder. But God's grace is with you more now. You're older. You've, you've believed more. You've got more reasons to believe. You can see in the past more things God has done. So, you know, there's plenty of, of means of grace that God gives to you, but you still have to walk. As we get older, we still have to walk day by day by faith. Yes. Yes. The day you stop dying to self is the day your self dies. That's the day you get to stop dying to self. Steve. Yeah. This is the work of God. Believe. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. You feel like that. You feel like. The more you hold on to it, yeah. the harder it gets. Yeah. And the more mm. you look to God and trust in Him, then He will renew your strength. Yes. Like mm. But that doesn't come just because you're old. That's <laughs> yes. That You've got to believe. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important that we're in that word every day, too, so we can get that reminder, right? Get that warning, too, right, Bob? Don't harden your hearts. I mean, we need to hear both. Um, because we can do both, and, and God keeps us, but we are walking in that keeping. You know, it's not, well, I'm going to lay in my bed until God makes me read my Bible. You know, try that with your boss, you're going to be fired, right? Um, you do it, and you trust in the Lord uh, and not in, in yourself. So um, Deuteronomy 2, 1 to 8, some neat things here. You see God's benevolent care for all the nations, 1 to 8, 9 to 18, 19 to 23. I want to just go quickly here, but they're passing through Esau. They're passing through Moab. They're passing through Ammon. These are not the, the, the promised people, right? These are not the children of, I mean, they are descendants of Abraham, but they are not the promised uh, ones. They are the ones who don't get the covenant. Esau, the one I hated, God says. Uh, Moab, and we remember where the Moabites came from and the Ammonites, you know, and their sordid past. And yet God cared for those peoples. God provided a place for them. And God says to his people, you don't touch them. You don't touch their land. I've given them a place. You know, I've, I have care for them too. These pagans who don't worship me, vast majority of them, no doubt not saved. And yet God in his common grace, right, he has, 
Every people has a place, has a nation. I mean, sometimes they're destroyed and other ones take over, but God is sovereign over all that. And I just noticed that. I mean, look at verse 5 where he says, Do not meddle with them. I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as one footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau. I mean, God cares for everybody. He does good to all. Now, verse 9. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, for I have given Ur to the descendants of Lot as a possession. Again, God limiting what he's going to do for his people in this temporal world, in this temporal sphere, because there are other people that God's benevolent, God's love of benevolence, God's common grace is going to show itself to until the judgment, um, when all of that will come to an end. But in the meantime, we need to remember that. Uh, verse 19, And when you come near the people of Ammon, do not harass them, do not meddle with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the descendants of Lot as possession. Just amazing care of God for the nations. You know, it reminds me of Paul on Mars Hill where he talks about, you know, in the past God, you know, put up with the nations as, as it were, and he let them go their own way. You know, he overlooked their sin. And that's the way Paul describes it. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent as the gospel is going out. Uh, but the, there was a certain amount of, you know, patience that God just showed the pagans and allowed them to live and allowed them to sin. And they reproduced and they died and they, their children lived and they sinned and they reproduced and they died and their children lived and they sinned. And, and none of them believed God. And they did all sorts of horrible things. And even God's restraining grace restrained them from becoming as bad as they could. And no doubt, God gave to them food and gladness and filled their hearts with these things, as Paul says to another pagan uh, city. And that's what God does. God is good to the wicked. Acts 17, 26. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. He has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. God is good to all. Westminster Confession 21.1. The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, and he is good. Notice this. And he doth good to all. That's Reformed theology. God doth good unto all. And is therefore, because he is good, he is to be feared and loved and praised and called upon and trusted in and served with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. Boy, the Westminster Divines were so good. Because he's good, that's why all nations should turn to him. Because he's done nothing but show them good and patience and long-suffering, and still they don't turn to him. Um, verse 7, we see a, an example of blessing in the midst of judgment. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He knows you are trudging through this great wilderness. God was blessing that, the, that generation 40 years. All your trudging. He blessed the work of your hands. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you and you lack nothing. The very people he said whose carcasses would fall in the wilderness. Yet he blessed them and they lacked nothing that whole time. And many of them uh, died in peace. I mean there were judgments that came on some of them as they continued to rebel. But many of them... Again, he showed goodness to. Uh, the giants are mentioned. We're going to look at those later. Um, I just think it's neat to notice that there are no unoccupied lands. You know, as I hear people talking about Israel and, you know, well, it's the Palestinians and it's the Jews. If you want to talk about who was there first, it's the Jews. 
There, was, there were no Muslims till the 600s AD. Okay? None. There were no Arabs. There was Abraham. And God gave him the land and they were there. Even the, even the critical scholars say they were there by 1200 BC. No Arabs existed. No Muslims existed. So if you want to talk about, okay, whoever's there first gets the land, is this, you know, the nonsense that we do today, um, then sure, you got to say it belongs to Israel. But the fact of the matter is God gives to different people the lands, and there are wars of conquest, and yeah, there's injustices, and guess what? Before we got here, the Indians murdered and took each other's land and ate each other and did horrible things to each other, and yeah, you know, this tribe had it for a while and then another tribe massacred them and took it. So, you know, you can't say we like to look at just what Western whites did and not look at what every nation has done since the world began. All right. You know, so I just noticed that here in this text. Um, the Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them. And they dwelt in their place just as Israel did. That's the way it happens with every land. Oh, yeah, some people formerly lived there, and these other ones came in and destroyed them, and now they have it. And then before that, something else and something else. Uh, verses 20 to 23. Um, that also was regarded as a land of giants. Giants formerly dwelt there, but the Ammonites called them the Zamzumim, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them, and they dwelt in their place, just as he had done for the descendants of Esau, who dwelt in Seir, when he, God, destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them, and they dwelt in their place, even to this day. Who can say that isn't God, who ultimately, sovereignly, even by wicked people, destroy another people, because we all deserve it, and he gives these wicked people the land that belonged to those wicked people? I mean, who's to say that? How do I know? Uh, those things. And how am I going to right wrongs by punishing people centuries later for every wrong that's, that centuries ago committed both by the people and the, pe and the people who suffered it and they're all dead now. And we're going to make their children pay for it. Um, so I just think, you know, that kind of stuff. When you read this text, this is the way God did it. The Avim who dwelt in the villages of Gaza who came from Kafur, they destroyed them and they dwelt in their place. That's the way this sinful world works. Again, not that we don't want to try to right wrongs when we can, but you can't punish somebody for something that happened 200 years ago. That is wicked. Um, and finally, we see in verses 14 to 16, God does keep his word of judgment. At the time we took to come from Kedesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Zerod, it was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war were consumed just as the Lord had sworn. So it was when the men of war had finally perished that now it's time to go in. And as I said to you last time, it was when they died in the judgment of God, that now becomes another reason to trust God because God said it would happen. 40 years would happen. They would all die. Then you'll get the land. So now as Israel's about to go in, they have one more reason to believe God. Even in God's judgment, he gives them a motivation to believe. They're all dead. It's 40 years later. I said, I'll give you the land. Now go in and take it. And so uh, that's something I think we want to remember, too, that when we suffer the chastenings of the Lord, even that has a purpose for good if we just trust God. So Deuteronomy, I think, even though we get recounted all these acts of rebellion, shouldn't it push us more to trust God as we go forward? So uh, I'll have to figure out what I'm going to do if I'm going to still go chapter by chapter, but I am going to start looking maybe at some topics as well. 
So if you have any questions or parts of the book that you want to talk about, uh, bring that to the class and, and I'll try to do some work there. So let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you how you put up with the Israelites in the wilderness. And we thank you, Lord, for how you put up with us and how we pray that you would help us to believe in you, to turn away from sins, to not harden our hearts, but to remember your goodness, Lord God, that you intend us good. 